Hi, everyone. I'm Dawn Richard, also known as The Awakening with Dawn, and this is the Wake Up to Real Love podcast, where we share stories of struggles and triumphs in love, sex, and relationships, along with expert advice to create more conscious connections. I am very honored and excited today to have my friend Michael Banks with me. Hi, Michael. Hi there, John. <laughs> uh, Michael has been a lifelong educator, starting with working with criminalized Jamaican youth in South London to coaching corporate leaders around the world. He's an author and podcaster who has his own amazing show called Heroic Journeys from Crisis to Transformation because he has a unique experience with this exact thing. Uh, Michael loves cricket, cookery, music, and Crystal Palace Football Club. But most of all, he loves his partner, Karen, his kidney donor, and their two Yorkies, Rana and Freddie. They live together in the village of Brook in Norfolk, UK. Welcome, Michael Banks. Thank you, Dawn. That was a lovely intro. Appreciate it. <laughs> um, okay, so this is, this is sort of strange. When I, when I read this about you, you started working with criminalized Jamaican youth. Can, mm -hmm. you, can you tell me why and what you learned both about them and about yourself through that experience? Absolutely. Yeah, it was, uh, it was something else. I mean, I was at university for four years. Uh -huh. I was about to go to Thailand to teach 18 to 21-year-old Thai women how to speak English. I was kind of looking forward to that. Um, being, <laughs> I guess being, you would. <laughs> being a young 22-year-old man myself. Um, and... Uh, then I fell in love with an art student in London, in Camberwell, and uh, I remember I moved in with her, even though she was 16, but her father was an arts professor there at the school, and they were very liberal, so I moved into their four-story Victorian house. Uh, yeah, liberal, I'd say progressive. <laughs> hmm, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I remember on the, on the 7th of the 7th, 77, that was the date when I made a decision not to go to Thailand, but to stay with, with Kathy. Uh -huh. However, then I had to make another decision. What the hell was I going to do with my life? Yeah. Because suddenly I'm in London. So I took a summer job on Peckham Adventure Playground, which, um, which in England, adventure playgrounds are where kids go. Typically, like mine, a place of last resort where they can be away from the police, the teachers, the parents. And like many playgrounds, it's inner city. And so Peckham was literally the worst area in London at the time. Uh -huh. Highest mugging, highest child mortality, highest delinquency. And so I took this summer job um, and I, I was going then from the kind of uh, middle class, comfortable university, book read environment into another world. Yeah, and really. We took in kids from the age of five to 21, but by the time you reached the age 13, all the white kids went to the boys' club next door and all the black kids stayed on my adventure playground. Uh -huh. I ended up running it for three years. And so <clears throat> it was incredibly rewarding. It was incredibly scary. I mean, yeah. every day for three years, I'd, I'd walk in there, unlock the gates with a knot in my stomach because I was scared of knives in those days, not guns. Uh -huh. um, but uh, it was, I was very proud of myself because in the end I was the only car, car that had been parked outside that was never broken into. 
Wow. Because, because they had respect for you? Yes, exactly. They're wow. lovely. Um, and it was a great, a great example of exerting authority without any formal authority at all. Uh-huh. It was all, what I learned was, I have a natural gift for it, but I had to pull out all the stops to develop rapport with these kids. And many of them, when I say criminalized, they were around crime uh-huh. or they were petty criminals themselves. Uh-huh. So they did carry knives. So they did, they were hostile at times and it was scary. Um, and they were there because they couldn't go anywhere else. Um, so well, that's great though, that you provided sort of a safe container for them. Yeah, absolutely. They, they trusted me to the point where I had a little uh, protection racket going on. Uh, just one example, Wayne, who was the oldest one. Um, one day, one of the, they had a 10 speed brand new bicycle that was stolen off the playground. So Wayne came up to me and he went, he used to wear a cap over his eyes and he did a look down and Yo man, you're not worry, man. Me, me, I find the bike for you. And so, ten minutes later, the bike reappears. Wow! <laughs> obviously, put the word out that hey, no one, no one fucks with Michael Banks. You know what I mean? <laughs> 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 the only, the only problem with Wayne is that he spent the next three years trying to invite me up to smoke some ganja up in his apartment on the estate. <laughs> and, and I. I say, hey, man, I would love to do it, but I just can't. It's not like, you know, it, my role's at stake here. So, Right. But, but it really was. It was, a, it was a, the biggest slum in Europe, low-rise, high-density slum in Europe. They pulled it down since. And so what great training ground for the leadership work that you ended up doing. How did, how did you get to that place? <laughs> uh, not the conventional route, that's for sure. After uh-huh. the playground i was going to go and tour spend a year touring south america and north america and i ended up through a friend of my sister who was also living in london to find out about a seminar program called exegesis which at the time was extremely controversial the founder of exegesis was on the front page of the english national rags like brainwashing cult and all this sort of crap ah and uh so anyway, to cut it short, I did this seminar. I had a truly transformational enlightenment experience. Um, and my life was, has never been the same since. What, was, what, what, was, what was that experience? Um, it was, well, the, the seminar itself was several days long, from early morning to late at night. And it was all about observing your mind in action, mm-hmm. your judgments, your rational mind, observing your feelings and emotions. <clears throat> and at the end of it, the magic was in realizing all of that, suddenly you realize you're the observer. You're not your body. You're not your thoughts and your feelings. You're the consciousness that is observing this thing that you are in your current lifetime that's moving through time, space, or maybe not, but whatever. Um, and so, why is it so hard for us? to take ourselves out of this humanity and become that observer? It's a great question. Um, well, one of the reasons is that we're, a, we're t- to some degree or another, in, in a pretty much a constant state of fear and protect, self-protection. Um, and we are very much, we, we think we are our minds. Mm-hmm. So we, because of that, um, 
that's really tied up with ego. And because of all of that, um, we, we see constant threat around us. So we have to defend ourselves or attack other people, which is another form of defense, of course. Um, and it's people simply very practically have no education in my book, my view in how to mm-hmm. realize that you are just consciousness. You're the observer. Um, and that your higher self is different from your small mental construct that you think is like, I think I'm Michael Banks. Well, I am on one level. Right. You're like that ego part of you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I was fortunate enough to have this experience. And a lot of people have these experiences. They get it in different ways. And then some people have these experiences, I believe, through meditation practice or, you know, uh, study. Or if you're a Buddhist, maybe up a mountain for 10 years on your own. You know, it's the Kundalini moment. It's the realization that, you, that who you are is not what you are and what you mm-hmm. think. Because most of the stuff that goes through our head is absolute bilge. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nonsense. We, we give ourselves a lot of bad, <laughs> negative, um, destructive uh, messages. Yeah, we definitely do. And so, so you can imagine that uh, the after effect of me having this enlightening experience was nothing short of extraordinary. I mean, my energy was off the charts for months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And um, the first thing I did, in fact, when I, when I finished this seminar, <coughs> excuse me, was to go back to my apartment in London where I had a whole bunch of potted plants. And I realized the first thing I saw was these potted plants were dying. They were dusty. They were, and I spent a whole week looking after the plants, repotting them, uh, giving them haircuts, watering them, giving them fertilizer, bringing them to life. Uh-huh. I mean, my, my eyes were opened, my senses were opened to, to color, to, and there was this energy that I had. And more than anything, it was a, it was a relief. I felt no longer bound by the, the shoulds and the oughts, which, of course, come from our parents and society. Yeah, everybody else around us. Exactly. Uh-huh. exactly. So, um, so, and then, but I haven't answered your question because you said, how do I get into the corporate stuff? Well, the, the founder of this uh, exegesis program um, decided to set up a group of companies where we could actually, originally the people who'd been through this, some of them had been through this program. Right. Um, would start, uh, we could start a group of companies where we could implement um, the practices, the, the principles that we'd experienced on this seminar, but put it into the business world. Uh-huh. And guess what? It was, we had extraordinary results. We had an amazing work environment. I mean, we had heads of companies visiting us, us from all over UK. They would come in purposely to be sold to, but to be experiencing this old furniture warehouse that we transformed into a hive of happiness, energy, buzz, creativity, I mean, they couldn't believe it. It's weird for 1980 in London. Yeah. I, I, while you were talking about that, I was imagining like you're going into all of these companies and doing with them what you did to the plants, dusting them off, ch- cutting, cutting the, the trim, you know, um, fertilizing and creating this new sense and bringing these companies back to life. 
Well, that's, that's what they wanted. Is That's how I got into the corporate uh, work because these corporate leaders would say, you know, hey, can we have some of this? I don't know what you're doing, but it works. Can, we, can you do that to us? Yeah. Um, so one of the nine companies we set up um, was a training company. So I ended up doing, as an educator, that's what I went into, and I became a senior trainer in programs, Training Limited, and doing programs for major corporations mm-hmm. uh, like Lufthansa and uh, Lloyds Bank and companies like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was before um, that I left, and then I came to the States in 89. Mm-hmm. And so I, I want to sort of transition because I know your work has been in leadership, but I also know that you had a previous relationship that you struggled in. And so I want, I want you to talk about, you know, how you came from this observer position. You know, you had this um, transformation in your own life and you could bring it into your, um, your work. But I'm, I'm wondering how you struggled in your previous marriage. Um, that was a mistake. And I knew it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. And I didn't act on that knowing, that knowledge. Um, and as a result, suffered for many, 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 many years financially. Mm-hmm. Um, How long I, were you married? 11 years. Okay. And I, and I should have left. I made a decision to leave five years before I actually did. Mm-hmm. But I, I was too scared to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically, I, I used to have this philosophy that uh, you can make any relationship work. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too, Michael. And if you, if you love them enough. Yes. Yes. Kind of. Uh, um, but I think the, the realization, what, basically what it was is a complete lack of com- compatibility in that this person, she was not, it sounds arrogant. She was not on the same level as me. Mm-hmm. This was an individual who um, didn't understand the nature of taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. One of these people who's always the victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of these people who's uh, very sensitive so you can't be honest without it being received as some form of criticism and therefore defend, de- defended against. Mm-hmm. So we would have terrible rows. Um, she'd also drink and then she would badmouth me in public. But, but the bottom line is that she had, she was less evolved. Simple as that. But that's my fault as well because I should have realized um, that it was it, that I shouldn't have got into it, and that was a mistake. So Which, what gave what gave you the courage to finally say enough is enough? Well, interestingly enough, the what helped me was um, have you heard of Sri uh, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar? No, uh-uh. um, he's an Indian guru guy, mm-hmm. and he had. Um, he had, does this meditation technique and it's very physical. And I'd been to a conference in New York on uh, spirituality and business. Mm-hmm. And I'd been to a little workshop uh, about what someone else had conducted using his techniques. And I decided to practice this form of meditation, which was, like I said, very physical. It was almost like doing exercise as well. 
I did this for about three months every day. And I I noticed I was starting to feel a lot calmer and a lot more self-assured. And it really helped me to, when the day came, the opportunity came to actually just say, I'm, I'm leaving. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> what I didn't realize is that that day in June of whenever it was, <coughs> excuse me, that day was her birthday. Oh, no. And I didn't realize. <laughs> Happy birthday to you, not... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, talk about ridiculous mistake. I didn't realize it. Uh, I was obviously that disconnected from her by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that didn't help, and that's an understatement. Um, so, you know, the lesson is, you know, act on your real or what you know to be true. Um, that's a message for me anyway. Why, why do you think that we doubt our truth and our inner whisperings? Um, because we're afraid of what we're going to lose if we act on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and or the con- the negative consequences that we act on those things. And there were a lot of negative consequences for me if I had acted on it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was uh, probably would have had to leave the country. Mm. That's a yeah, for someone who whose home was definitely there, not in England, mm-hmm. um, and that was that you know it's, it was my home for twenty eight years until two years ago, two and a half years ago. Wow! Mind you, I don't think I would have minded so much now, <laughs> not more recently. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'm very happy to have moved out, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so I think to answer your question, there's definitely, I think that's the case. I mean, if, if, if you, because quite often the truth of what we know uh, shows us a direction which is, is scary. I mean, I could almost say that my podcast series is what I should be focused on 100%. But what, where would that leave me financially? in the interim before it's successful, if it is. Right. I should do that. I don't think that's a good example because I, I am conscious of maneuvering my way through to keep some income coming in while I do this. But I've had thoughts of just saying, but then I have responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Karen, you know, to, I mean, the, to, the money thing is really important. Mm-hmm. It, I, I feel like so much of our life, we focus on doing what's externally correct as opposed to, and I know this, this value is important for you, you're um, honoring your own authentic self. Yeah. You know, what, what really speaks to me? What lights me up? What is my passion? What am I here to do? You know, what message am I here to share? Um, who am I supposed to be in the world versus what am I supposed to do in the world? You know, we're human beings, not human doings. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that I feel 100% fulfilled in my own authenticity now. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I do what I want to do and what I need to do. And sometimes that involves, you know, maneuvering around a bit. So I'm not going to do something stupid like jack in my, the business that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. That would be bonkers. Um, so how did, how did you get to a place where you started honoring more your authentic self? Um, I think definitely the leaving that marriage was a big, big deal. I think there was, I was, I've had such a sense of freedom to be myself, which I hadn't been. I was cramped in that relationship. Mm-hmm. I couldn't express myself as I really want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I wasn't a bad person. I mean, even if I'd done something, you know, why are you doing that? The, the, the misinterpretation of, <coughs> excuse me, um, the misinterpretation of my actions and desires and everything was, too, was so suffocating. So I think the, the, I became, for example, after that, I, I had a fantastic time. I was never happier. I was doing stuff that I dreamt about. You know, those dreams that we dream about when we're younger and we put to one side. Like what? Well, one of them was when I was a teenager, I used to, living in my parents' house, I used to uh, listen to music and an improvised spoken word over the music and record it. Like rapping? No, they didn't have rap in those days. (laughs) I'm actually a useless rapper. I tried it once. My friend Nick Graham it's a whole other story, but he had the Bulls Boat Club or the BBC or the Lord of Bulls is his real name, uh, Lord of Bulls, which uh, Nick was a guy who created uh, Joe Boxer, the, the uh, smiley face underwear. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was a good friend and he had a private club in Marin County. And uh, he was a incredibly, he is an incredibly talented human being. And we used to have jam sessions. There was room in this big place where he had his club. Uh, you know, for a band to play. And uh, so <laughs> he and I, he, he challenged me to do a rap on stage in front of everyone. And I just wasn't as good as him. It was embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> hey, no, but you so, got up there and did it. Good for I you. I did it. I did it. All I could do was focus on the fact that he uh, criticizing his uh, sneakers. Um, <laughs> it was pathetic, really. But he was he's brilliant with words. He actually composed and sang with the band as well himself. Uh-huh. But um, no, what happened is that, uh, you know, I had this dream to do that. Well, then fast forward to the age of 50 and I started rehearsing with, uh, you know, the, um, the band. Oh, God, they're very famous. Anyway, Justice was, was his name and he's keyboard player. He went on the road with them. Um, the, the, the band's name will come to me. Doesn't matter. And I was rehearsing with him and he, he was doing some pre-recorded stuff, some jazz, some uh, electronic uh, and uh, we put together these three pieces and there's a famous music place in Mill Valley called Sweetwater where Carlos Santana and John Lee Hooker and all these famous people Bonnie uh-huh. Ray play. and uh, on a Monday night it was a packed house and uh, they had a band called uh, you might remember them Electric Flag mm, no from, uh, from way back uh-huh. uh, anyway so Nick Gravnights was the singer and they were dinosaurs by the time I, they played at Sweetwater and they had the, all these old hippies in the audience and they were, yeah, encore after encore. Finally me and Justice 
went on stage, all the lights went down. I'm sitting there in a black suit with a white tie. He's got a suit and tie on keyboards. Yeah. And I start off with a Hindu chant. We go into a uh, techno beat and it's called Love Revolutionary. And all these old guys, <laughs> these long heads are going, what's this? This is absolute crap. You can't have this sort of stuff in our club. And then they got shouted down by all my posse. You know, I had about 30, 40 people there. And, and I got, we got a standing ovation at the end. Uh, and I did it. I performed my spoken word uh, for about half an hour with this live and recorded music mix. I so, want to he- hear this love revolution. I think that sounds really cool. Uh, yeah, I actually, what was the coolest thing for me, unfortunately, no one recorded it. What? So, I know, I know. I, there was a young guy who was there that night. Months later, I was in another town. And he saw me across the road. He said, hey, you're the rock star without a guitar. Because that was the name of one of my tracks, Rock Star Without a Guitar. Uh-huh. And he bowed and goes, hey, man, that was so incredible what you did. This is like months later. And I thought, yeah, it would have, could have. Wow. Yeah. So. I don't know. There, it's still in you. What it is, it's just that, uh, you know, my podcasting is, is, the, is the focus now. So that's really important. I think you can incorporate that into your podcast, Michael. Well, I am in a way. I mean, I, I, you know, I've done it. You know, there's certain things when you do and you fulfill them and then you sort of move on. The, the, the thing I'd like to have on my podcast, though, is, uh, is a music element because music is, is my thing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so I don't know where we started, got off on this tangent, but. Uh, oh, oh, I know. How, you're, how you're honoring your authentic self. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so that's just one example. Another one was cricket. You know, I hadn't played for 27 years, or more, 29 years. And at the age of 50, how on earth could I play cricket again? I mean, you know, I'm a middle-aged guy. And, um, and I joined the local club, which is a prestigious, best in Northern California. Uh-huh. And um, there was an Australian fast bowler, young fast bowler. And if you know anything about cricket, he's, he's throwing it down at quite a big speed. Right. And... Uh, it was only my second innings and, and I hit him for four, which means you hit the ball to the boundary, right? To the edge of the field. The next ball he comes in and I go down on one leg and I hit him over the oak tree for six, which is like a home run. Wow. And I thought, well, I can't believe it. I can do it. I can still do it. <laughs> and the joy. And then I became captain for the next 10 years or whatever. How fun. Yeah. So, so the authenticity is, is uh, was definitely enhanced by that experience of, of liberation. Yeah. And all the other things that it taught me about friendship and community and getting off the treadmill, mm-hmm. which I did. I, I was into the money and the prestige and the, everything was going like that, but mm-hmm. very two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, authenticity to, to me is, is crucial. Um, yeah. And so, and so your liberation, how did your liberation and your authenticity lead you to Karen? Through many, many other relationships. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, was, I was doing in, uh, in those years what most young guys do in their 20s. I, I had a fantastic time and have many stories and memories, but... Uh, but then like, one, like, like, I want more of this. I want less of that. Yeah. <laughs> all these learn, all these learning experiences. Like I like that. I don't like that. I want that. I don't want that. Yeah, for sure. But, but in the end, I think what was most important 
excuse me. <coughs> In the end, what was most important is that when I'm, I met Karen through a mutual friend and I spent one night with her, this is where I get choked up. Um, we didn't have sex. We didn't even take her clothes off. I think she's just wearing an underwear and T-shirt. And I just held her the whole night. Mm. And uh, her. <clears throat> and anyway, it, the expression that I've used since then is that it was just like coming home. Mm. I felt completely at ease. We didn't start dating that night. I mean, it's, it was only quite a few months later it's like somebody that somebody that makes you feel so safe and secure and just like that you can just completely surrender and trust when you're with her my best friend yeah And, uh, and, and what was interesting and i think the 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 point worth making for the audience is that up to then and i'm talking about a lot of relationships throughout my life Uh I'd always have what I think men and women have but especially men I'd always had a checklist of like criteria it's a bit like when you go to buy a house (laughs) you know these are the 10 criteria that have to be met right (coughs) well in fact it's the same with the relationship you know she has to be intelligent she has to be a certain look height you know have certain interests and of course no one ever matched up to those criteria. So for me coming home was the realization that that checklist had completely gone out the window. It didn't exist anymore. Do you think it's because the checklist was more external qualities as opposed to internal qualities? Um, It's a good question. Um, Largely, although by this time, I was still, because I've been through all these different experiences, I was still very attuned to what was really important, uh-huh. which was the, the heart connection. Right. Um, the, you know, the, the soul connection. Uh, I don't, th- I, I, I mean, there was still the external, the external things still existed, but the, they, 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 I didn't see them when I was with Karen to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. I still don't. I mean, we're still, we're in love. I mean, to this day, 15 years later or 14 years later. And uh, we've been through amazing experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I would like to, to talk about and actually write about in my upcoming book that has not been started but thought about called Josh, This Is What I've Learned, uh-huh. Josh is a hairdresser. So I want to I want to pass down to, to especially to the younger guys, you know, 20s and 30s what I've learned. But I think um you know, we've been through the commitment. You know, the Christian church talks about marriage being willing to be together through thick and thin. Right. Well gosh, yes, that's commitment. And me and Karen have been through thick and thin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know if I've answered your question, but it's, um, of course, there are certain compatibilities. You know, we, we both love smells, beautiful smells. She's an aromatherapist by training. Nice. So, before I came on this interview, I was, she, she, she makes a spray for me that I put on after I shower every day. 
and it's full of like nine or sorry, six, this latest one is about six or seven different essential oils, uh-huh. you know, frankincense and bergamot and, and patchouli and, uh, and vetiver and all kinds of stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, so we like smells. We love, uh, we both have a sense of adventure and fun. We used to party like crazy. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> with peas in a pod like that, really wild. <laughs> so much fun. I mean, we still do now, but it's, it's not quite, uh, it, it's not, it can't be, especially after I've had a kidney transplant. Right. And, you know, it's a different world here anyway. So, uh, and, you know, and, and other interests like, um, like music, like food, like travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those are externalities in a way. They're sort of what you're, um, you know, and, and she's, she's beautiful. Mm. That's, uh, that's what I want my man to say. <laughs> when I find somebody new, I want him to say, you know, I love everything about her. I may not like everything about her because there's some things that will drive me crazy, but I love who she is. And I love the way that I feel around her, you know, that, that I feel that sense of I'm at home. This is my safe place. I can just come home and be. I I think you, yeah. And you just made a really good distinction, uh, which is that, you know, might not like, we might, there's things about me that she doesn't like and vice versa. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't like it when she gets cranky when she hasn't had enough to eat and she gets really cranky uh-huh. or <clears throat> I don't like it when she uh, gets bossy. Um, I mean, she told me that I've, I've helped her knowing me has helped to be more assertive. Mm. What has got to be extremely <laughs> You're like, you're like, can you not be so assertive? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and she doesn't like me for all kinds of things as well. I mean, uh, uh, you know, she, she's annoyed at me that, you know, my most awake hours are sort of late at night. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she said, why can't you just get an early night and, and be like everyone else and get, get up? Early? <laughs> I mean, so I can go she, on. We, she hasn't met me. I stay, I stay up till two and three in the morning all way, all the time. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's fantastic. We never had kids, but we got two now. One's called Rana and one's called Freddie. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're puppies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, t- so tell me about her loving offering to you. Yeah, that's the, um, the kidney. Well, yeah. Kidney. Well, you know... Um, I think this must be the case for everyone. When you get really serious news, like you got cancer or you got, in my case, kidney disease or whatever, mm-hmm. it's a shock typically because you don't know. Certainly with kidney disease, you don't have any symptoms really until it's sometimes too late. Mm-hmm. So I went for a routine blood test and uh, they said, I've got chronic kidney disease. And it was just a complete shock. And I spent several hours, uh, sorry, sorry, several, gosh, months trying to, uh, avoid it going any further. Um, but eventually, um, whatever I did didn't work. I tried a bunch of stuff, Qigong, which worked for quite, it helped a lot for three months till Christmas when I, 
wanted to enjoy Christmas and didn't do my yeah. practice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, alternative homeopathic remedies. And then one day, you know, I started to, I was sleeping and I slept all of Thursday, Thursday night, all of Wednesday night, Thursday, Thursday night. And I was sleeping halfway through Friday. I was just cutting out. And she said, I'm taking you to the doctor. And then they said, okay, you're going to the hospital now. And I went to the emergency room. And next morning I woke up that your kidneys have failed. Wow. And at that point, you know, it's, you think that's the end of my life. Scared. Very, talk, talk about fear. Yeah, terribly scared. And so when she came to visit me that next morning and sat on the end of the bed and said, you know, is there anything I can do to help? It's kind of an obvious question, but I just blurted out, yeah, can, can you give me one of your kidneys? I mean, on one level, it's just a crazy question to ask because we're putting her on the spot for starters. Yeah. Just like that. I mean, Imagine the situation she found herself in. I mean, if she well, said, well, but I would imagine that would be the question that you would want to ask every single person that you talk to. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was panicking. Yeah. And, and she said, yeah, okay, um, let me think about it. But it was sort of a, a, a qualified yes. Right. Um, and then she went through, so she decided to, to be tested. So we both did and went down to LA and right up to this over several months, we were being tested and right up to the last minute. She was given the opportunity. She was down there on her own, a final assessment. The nurse said, look, you don't have to do this. I can help you find a way out of this, a way of explaining it to Michael and da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. And at that point, she, she still wasn't decided. In fact, she, was probably not going to go through with it. And she got on the plane to come back to San Francisco where we lived. And while she was in the air, she kind of, she sort of had a, a revelation that, yeah, I'm going to do it. Wow. This is what I need to do. And she did it. I mean, she, 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 uh, I have one of her kidneys inside me. I'm sure for her, that must have been really scary as well. Oh, yeah. but, but, I can, but I can imagine when she was on that plane where her consciousness, you know, her higher self just said, this is what you need to do. You yes. know, this is, it doesn't matter how afraid you are, like we have your back and, and we're, we're leading you to where you need to be or what you need to do. You're absolutely right. And that's actually in other words, in different words, how she explains it. Uh-huh. And, she, and actually, when I wrote the book uh, that I wrote about the, those few years, the whole journey, um, she, I said to her, would you like to write a chapter so that you can share your story from the point of view of a donor? Uh-huh. The idea of the book was to help a lot of people. Right. Um, and part of that help was to encourage people considering donating. And so in that chapter, she talks about her fears. She also talks about all the pressures she was under from like family and friends that didn't want her to do it. Mm-hmm. So she had to go against the, a lot of people who were very important in her life saying, don't do it. Right. It wasn't just her fear of, of the 
of the donation, if you like, of her organ. No, it's 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 all that pressure. Like, what 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 will everybody else think? How is everybody else going to uh, experience my choice that I'm making? Yeah, absolutely. And so you know, that's so, so she had that, and uh, you know. And of course, I said to her at the time, oh, don't worry, I'll be back to normal in six months. I'll be back working. And of course, <laughs> it took me years. I've been in recovery for years. And wow. it wasn't until the beginning of last year, like four years later or whatever, that I started to be able to work again, that I started to be able to walk normally. Um, and this year, to get really fit and strong with a personal trainer doing Pilates, because my even last year, I tried to play cricket again, and I kept on falling over. <laughs> she has it on, papers. She has yeah. it on video tape as well. Very <laughs> uh, you know, there was me sort of bigging myself up and saying, hey, yeah, to the local club here in Brook. Yeah, I used to be a really good cricket player, and I've still got it in me as well. So, And they went, okay, yeah, open the batting. You know, you're in first. I went out and tried to hit the ball and fell over. The first ball. <laughs> They're like, great, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and this year I was, I was, anyway, so I, um, yeah. And so, to, and so my point in saying all of this is it's taken me a long time. And she has had the patience of a nurse who's also a saint. Mm. Uh, the fact she's had to, she's stuck with me in some really difficult times. Like, a lot of, our, lot of uh, side effects of all this. Your body goes through massive surgery. One of them, for example, was gout. I got it so bad that they had to, the, the, uh, the fire, local fire, fire brigade in Mill Valley sent uh, four young strapping guys into the house to stretcher me out because I couldn't walk. Wow. It was in such a bad way. And they offered me morphine in the, in the van on the way to the emergency room in the city. I gladly accepted it. Yeah. So, um, you know, episodes of, like I said, I couldn't walk. So she likes to walk a lot. She's physical, exercising. I, I was walking slowly because there was pain in my legs and on and on and on. I mean, so she's been unbelievable and um, really, ca- really caring for you. Yeah, totally. And she's. And whatever it, space you're in. Yeah. And, and she still is. I mean, it's like when, when I got this injury to my leg that I'm recovering from, her first thought was, better not be a blood clot. You know, and yeah. her first thought was, you know, in your condition with one kidney. And so she was basically reading the biotech to me. And, you know, all my assertiveness training for her paid off. <laughs> <laughs> and you are the beneficiary of that as well. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, she's right. I mean, she's usually right. She tells me what to do, and she's usually right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm very lucky. I'm incredibly blessed to have her in my life. And we're just, uh, you know, we're, we're together for the long haul and and uh, just total commitment. And, of course, now, I mean, I'm helping her now because we're back in England, and her mother has dementia. Yeah. And she's a full-time carer for her mother. But it does mean that I take it on when she so she can get away from the house, go to the city, go to the coast. Mm-hmm. I look after her mum while she's not around. You know, mm-hmm. I cook her lunch, or I look, you know, get her cups of tea. And so it's been a reciprocal, you know, uh, relationship. And I help her in, in many ways. 
including how to confront your boss with uh, a request for a pay rise and things like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've done. You know, I'm gonna, here's the wording, honey. This is what you need to say. And I'll write the email for you. <clears throat> anyway. So, so in other words, you make a good team. Yeah, we do. We really do. We, we're a brilliant team, actually. Um, you know, like in the kitchen, we're a very good team. We actually divide it up pretty evenly. And sometimes I'll, you know, our Sunday roast, you'll do the, the chicken. I'll peel the potatoes and make the salad or, or whatever, do the uh-huh. vegetables. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm finally taking her on a honeymoon. You are? Where are you going? Where she's always wanted to go to, never been. And I've been saying to for years that, oh, honey, I'm going to take you, I promise you. And, I, and it pains me so much. For so many years, I've not been able to afford it uh-huh. because of my illness. Yes. I've been able to work. I'm on disability. Right. I can work now a bit, which is why I've, even though I can't afford it, I'm taking the plunge. And I'm taking her to where she's, I've been saying for years, she, I'm going to take her. And that's the Amalfi Coast in Italy. Oh, it's so beautiful there. Oh. Yeah. So she is over the moon. We're going for two weeks. No expenses spared. I've just got to get another bit of work between <laughs> now and the end of the year so I can pay the debt. So I've, got, I've done work enough to be able to pay for most of it, but I, I need to make a bit more. When are you taking her? In May. In May. Oh, lovely. Yeah. That'll be yeah. a beautiful time. It'll be warm. It'll be, you know, the, the spring rain should be gone and not the summer heat. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've really gone to town because it is a honeymoon. We haven't had a proper vacation. Yeah. All the time we've been together. Yeah. I mean, in the early days, she came to Hong Kong twice with me on, when I was on a business trip. Not the same. Yeah, it's still fun. But, you know, when I had to get up early in the morning and put on a suit and she'd be on her own all day. Yeah. Uh, She's come with me to New York on business and, you know, we've, we've taken short holidays like long weekends and stuff. Mm-hmm. We've never been on a real vacation. Uh-huh. So we've already booked the dogs. We've got the dogs that are going to be taken care of. We've got nurses coming in for her mom. Actually, her mom's probably going to go away. You know, we'll see. But it's hard to get away, you know. So. Yeah. Well, good. The both of you deserve, deserve to treat each other. Thank you. Yeah, well, I definitely am so pleased I can finally treat her because she deserves it. She yeah. deserves it more. So, um, and, and like we're never being technically married, but we are. You we're are. A lot of married people. So. Yeah. I mean, the, the, piece of, the piece of paper does not define your relationship. Exactly. Yeah. Because there are plenty of people who have the piece of paper and have horrible relationships. Exactly. Well, I was one. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Me yeah. too. <laughs> she was yeah. as well yeah so and i and i i, I actually i don't i want to qualify it wasn't horrible awful we had a lot of bad you know we had a lot of issues um because i you know i have three beautiful children that came out of my relationship i have some good you know i have a lot of good memories but i also had a lot of pain and heartache too but you know i think i think it's so important you know like what you were saying it's like you, you have this really this person who is your safe space that is kind to you and shows you in so many ways how much they care about you, you know, 
in, in addition to I'm going to give you my kidney, <laughs> that's a huge one. Um, but all of, but everything, you know, everything just being by your side and, and supporting you in every, you know, struggle that you're having. Um, but just says, Hey, Hey babe, I got your back. Absolutely. Right? That's, what she, that's what she says to our pup, puppy, Freddie. She said, don't worry, Freddie, we've got, we've got you covered. Yeah, there <laughs> yeah. you go. There you go. <laughs> have you, um, have you, do you have the capability, I know we're on live now, of pausing for a moment? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yes. Hold on. Okay, we're back. <laughs> um, okay, so you guys like to cook together. Yes. And are you going to, well, are you going to? I'm going to stop you there. What? No. We both like to cook, but not necessarily at the same time. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, get out of the kitchen. <laughs> You're in my way. But so, I'll help you peel the potatoes if you want me to. I will do that, and then I'll call you when, it, when I'm done. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and then you can take over. It's the same for me as well. It's like, hey, don't, don't, don't take it. Look, don't take any of that sauce. That, don't take it or, or, you know, stop picking at the chicken. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> but then do you guys laugh about it? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I think that's one of the most important things in a, in a good relationship yeah. is that you have the ability to laugh, not just with each other, but sort of at each other, you know, we, we actually, one of the things that we've got into doing recently, I've noticed it's just, it just evolved that way, but, we can get some really, you know, nasty with each other, like oh. really slam, slamming uh, argument. And then within, and then we start breaking into this, like making fun of the argument and making fun of each other. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, and and it's, it's incredible. It's like, then it's gone. That's good. It's like, you have to, you have to break the cycle, you know, yes. whatever that uh, angst and contention that you're dealing with. It's like, how do we cut through that to get back exactly. to the space of, you know what? I love you and I feel connected to you and you are my safe place. And, you know, let's get back to that. And also something else with that saying, you're sorry. Yes. Just saying that I'm really sorry. I got mad this morning or just now or whatever. Yes. I think that is so important. I mean, that's one of the things that I've talked about on, on this podcast before, because my parents were huge advocates of, will you please forgive me? You know, I was a complete jerk. I was out of line. I, you know, I overreacted or whatever. Please forgive me. And, you know, let's kiss and make up and start anew. Like, let that stuff go. Let that shit go. <laughs> and come back, to, come back to this place where we're honoring our love and our connection. Absolutely. And it's so poisonous to, to hold on to as well. Yes. And it aberrates our behavior and it translates into physical aberration. And, yes. you know, I mean, I know that when interesting before I had that transformational experience, I mentioned earlier, uh, all the photographs of me at boarding school in my teens and then all the way up to the age of 25, every single photo, there was anger in my face. Really? Yeah. It was, it was huh. they say, written on my face. Huh. When I did that seminar afterwards, my, Oh, I was a different person. My it was like light, 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 
dropped, all the tension dropped from my face. And uh, yeah. And, so, that, and that is really liberating as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so freeing yourself from all the shit. <laughs> mm -hmm. Freeing yourself from all the external noise and um, pressure and, you know, expectations. Yeah. And just really coming to this place of accepting and just be being, being who you are. Exactly. So, so Michael, the, the last question that I always ask my gifts is how do you define real love? Oh, what a question. Um, there are no right or wrong answers. Yeah, no, but I have to think about it for a moment. Um, real love. Ooh, gosh, I've got so many different answers going through my head. <laughs> Go ahead, spiel them out. Well, I think the first thing that came to my mind, real love is when, when one's focus is on the other person, mm -hmm. not on yourself. Uh, real love is when... Um, you put the other put the other person first. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but you put the other person first. Real love is doing whatever you can to help the other person if they need your help. Mm -hmm. um, whatever real love is, really trying your utmost to support them in the best way you can. Um, and I think real love is just, as I say, more than anything, it's about putting your attention and care onto the other person, not on yourself. Mm -hmm. You come second. I come second. I always try to put myself second. Mm -hmm. um, it's, obviously, I've got needs, and, and I don't want to compromise in a, in a, in a you know, I, mean, I don't want to give the impression I'm suggesting you, you be... Inauthentic. Uh, I was just going to say inauthentic because, yeah. you know, you have to also still be true to yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't want to, you know, just say yes for the sake of it. You know, if she says, honey, can you help me? Sometimes I say, actually, I can't now. Mm -hmm. Sorry, but this is what's going on and I can't help you now. But if you, you know, I can, I can help you later. Mm -hmm. But, but, but in essence, that's my answer about real love. It's really, um, it just manifests in kindness mm -hmm. and caring. Mm -hmm. For me, kindness is huge as a value. I mean, I know that my values are, well, one of my three core values is love. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and then there's authenticity and freedom, but there's also kindness. That's probably the fourth. Mm -hmm. I think we need to be kind to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and, just, and just get off yourself. I mean, it, it, Real love is getting off yourself, you know, get out of your own head, get out of your own self-obsession, self-absorption, basically not be self-centered. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Easier said than done at times. Yes. Yes, it is. That's my answer or <laughs> yeah. answer. Yeah. Well, you have had quite a journey, Michael Banks. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it sounds like you have found your real love with Karen. It's really beautiful. Yeah. I always yeah. get emotional talking about her because
because yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, that's why when I do the cooking, <laughs> I put a lot of love and care into the cooking because I want her to have a lovely meal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not acceptable for me, me just to put, she'll even say, oh, well, did, look, you're in, a, you're in a hurry. You haven't got much time. Why don't you just put something on and just you know, don't do one of your sauces? I always end up doing even a little sauce. I'm famous for my sauces, fish sauce. Uh-huh. I have a number of different varieties of, of fish sauce. Um, but I always end up doing it because I really want to give the best, even when I'm cooking. That's really, really sweet. I mean, to have somebody who puts their heart into everything that they do for their partner. I mean, that's really, really beautiful. So. Yeah, well, I'm lucky she does it with me. Yeah, you're, you're both each other's gift. Yeah. Including physically. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and emotionally. You yeah, know, in sounds, every way. Yeah, in every way. what a beautiful partnership. Maybe, maybe sometimes she'll come on the show with you. That's interesting. Uh, she's actually, it's interesting because for the book, it's a great suggestion. Actually, it's a really good suggestion. I'll have to think about that. But she, for the book, I did a whole bunch of radio interviews um, in the States and over here. And one, we did several BBC interviews. And uh-huh. she was actually on a couple of those. And she was great. It was really nice that she was there to do it with me. So we co, co-did it, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can, you can just run that by her and see what she has to say about that. I will. For sure. That's, <laughs> that's a really, I'm excited to do that. In fact, in fact, she could even be a guest. That's what I mean. The two of you can come on. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> or if she wants to come on by herself, that's fine too. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so Michael, if people want to find out about your book or about your work, how do they how do they find you? How do they contact you? Sure. Um, <clears throat> okay, first of all, the book it's called Got a Kidney. That's G O T T A, as in the American version. Of <laughs> like the language, right? Apparently. Right. Got a kidney with a question mark and an exclamation mark after kidney. Uh huh. Um, and the subtitle is A Journey Through Fear to Hope and Beyond. Mm. And you can find it on Amazon. Um, it's not in retail outlets because it's self-published, unfortunately, but it's on Amazon. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it's not expensive. It's, a, it's about 120 pages. It's fantastic. Had, except for, of course, you're going to get one or two really bad reviews for various reasons. But the majority of people have said it's a really great read. That's okay. Or, you're a nice writer. I can attest to that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So uh, that's got a kidney. Um, and then also my, um, if you, my email address, if anyone's interested in, in uh, having me do some work with them, because I do, I've focused a lot on coaching over the last 20 years. Yes. Uh, individual coaching. I can do it virtually as well. Um, my email address is michaelbanks7 at gmail.com. M-I-C-H-A-E-L-B-A-N-K-S and the digit 7 at gmail.com. Um, and then also um, something to listen into and look out for my podcast series yes. which, uh, which went got off the ground the last month or two <clears throat> and it's called heroic journeys from crisis to, to transformation um, and I'm actually going to be doing a big launch on that an official launch but in the meantime if you want to listen to any of the episodes uh, if the audience want to listen to any of those with various men and women both here and in America 
Um, there's some really good ones, and you can get them on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher. There's about nine different platforms. You can't not find it. Right. So uh, check into that, and then the big launch is coming. And uh, my, uh, I've, <clears throat> I'm going to be uh, inviting some pretty well-known people eventually to be guests. And this probably won't mean anything at all to you, but for the British people who listen to this, actually, I shouldn't even be saying it, but my, <laughs> my biggest wish, once all the clamor has, has, has actually died down, um, and probably in six months from now, is to interview Ben Stokes. And Ben Stokes just made, single-handedly, won a huge game for England against Australia in a historic game it's never an achievement that's never been done before. Wow. And they're talking about making him a knight like Sir Ben Stokes. Wow. Now, he, two years ago, he was uh, arrested for a brawl after midnight outside a nightclub in Bristol in the West of England. Wow. And his whole career was threatened. And he had to have court cases and all kinds. Of, he was in the press and the front pages all the time. And he's come through and now he's the national hero. So that was, that's his own heroic journey. Yes, exactly. And yeah. so uh, wish me luck on that, but I'm, I'm waiting. I'm coming to get you, Ben, eventually. But... <laughs> and I think you will. I think you will, Michael Banks. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> so um, for, for the listeners, if you enjoyed uh, this episode with Michael, full of insight and inspiration on how to create you know, an authentic life for yourself and be a leader in, in yourself and, uh, you know, in the world and also to create a beautiful, safe space with a partner, um, you know, with kindness and caring and real love, real love. Um, you know, please subscribe to this podcast, wake up to real love and share with all of your friends all around the world, because we like to spread the love, (laughs) uh, and if you, if you would like support in finding more, um, you know, connection and freedom and authenticity in your own relationships, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at The Awakening with Dawn and feel free to send me a message and I'd be honored to help you find and create more real love in your life. And my, um, my website, The Awakening with Dawn is coming soon. So Keep an eye out for that. And the last thing that I end with, because even though our, you know, real love is all about giving and kindness and compassion and forgiveness, um, that the most important relationship you'll ever have is the one that you have with yourself. It all starts there uh, so that you can be the kind of partner that you want to have. So thank you so much, Michael, for being with me. I really appreciate you sharing your story. And I know it will have a huge impact um, to my listeners. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dawn. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care, listeners. And uh, every day, wake up to more real love. Take care. Bye.